John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 692.MT1424, certificate number 18688, Contiki. To solve the mystery to their own satisfaction, six men purposely set themselves adrift on an ocean which, even yet, is not completely charted. You're an explorer. I am absolutely not. Out. I like to go for long walks. Mm-hmm. Does that count? I yeah, like, I think. I do like the mystery of a walk where I'm not quite sure where we're going to go, or especially just kind of the unlooked for moment of grace of um, seeing something good I didn't know I was going to see. Are you so a, I guess I'm an explorer at heart. Do, do you take the same route every time when you go to familiar places, or do you take different routes? For errands, I will kind of always take the same route. I'm also an optimizer. Right. But if I'm just walking the dogs or walking around the neighborhood, I will actively try to like find streets I haven't walked down or views I haven't seen. Um, You've been down all the streets in your neighborhood. It's a pretty beta kind of uh, explorer, though. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's not exactly climbing Everest to uh, you know to discover a new pocket park in West Seattle. Your folks moved you to Korea uh, when you were young as part of their careers. Uh, their yeah, sort of chasing a kind of international life, but they weren't migrants. They they went out, but then returned to close to home. Yeah, they... Uh, what kept them from staying in Korea after they'd been there as long as they, they were there? That's an interesting question, because going native kind of is an option. I, you know, I haven't lived in Korea for, wow, 92, almost 30 years. Wow. And... Uh, even the long timers, the people I thought of as lifers, you know, who are just expats or, you know, whatever kind of quasi embassy, quasi military way they had found a setup shop there. Most of them aren't there anymore. A few of them married uh, local people, you know, and started a new family there. And maybe a, a couple of those are still there. If you went back to but, to Seoul, would you would it feel like home? I've been back to Seoul many times, and it doesn't feel like home, not just because everyone I know moved decades ago, but also just because the city has had an amazing revitalization. Um, they, you know, cleaned out the river, and they tore down the elevated highway, and it's it's just a, it's nice a, it's, it's a modern, bustling Pacific Rim city, and not kind of the, the uh, you know, Asian tiger 
capital struggling toward the developing world that it was in the 80s. Right. Um, but it felt a little like exploration. Like, I, you know, the reason I like to explore cities is because of those memories of just kind of running or biking around Korean streets as a kid with kind of the imperviousness <laughs> that, <laughs> that an American felt overseas back then, king of the world. But yeah, do you when you when you read about the age of exploration, and I guess the age of exploration, there were several several of them, and it lasted for several hundred years, many hundred years. Each and, better than the last, until unless you were a colonized people. <laughs> until pretty recently, actually. Yeah, there um, was stuff to explore into the twentieth century. When you read about that time, do you identify with that impulse? Do you c- could you picture yourself? At some point in, in, if you were a person born in the 16th century, would you have gotten on a ship and headed out to the unknown? I'm always of two minds. And on the first, on the first place, you're like, oh, sure. You know, I love to see, I love maps. Right. I love seeing new sites. I, I do, as I say, I like the unknown. I like a little, I like when a family trip has some unexpected side trip or discovery that kind of turns out to be added value. You love ink and gold. Is that what uh, exp- drives explorers? Well, it, well, at one point, well, I don't. I don't think the explorers more, of Alaska were maybe more were, gold than ink, <laughs> driven by ink and gold. But on the other Not hand, ink and gold. But oh, the gold of gold. the Inca, <laughs> ink and gold. I thought these were the two things that explorers wanted. They wanted ink. <laughs> they, <laughs> we know they wanted ink, but sure, sure, but sure Also, sure. driven by ink. Some f- a fun fact: they also liked gold. Yeah, if they were there, as they were collecting ink from the ink trees. I thought this was some version of gold and spices <laughs> that I had never heard before. Yes, no, I, uh, you know, as a kid, just fascinated by buried treasure and the idea that you might find Confederate gold in your fireplace, or I was always digging up the backyard for that kind of thing. But here's mm-hmm. why I'm not going to be a good explorer. Yeah. I can't go to sleep without my white noise machine. Uh, you know? Your pillow. You like, need your pillow. Like, here are the three kinds of Costco um, raw veggies I need in my fridge today. Or I'm going to pitch a little fit right. and uh, and add and add something to the shopping list on the fridge. You in, know? Big, in big letters, too, right? Yeah. Like, how did we forget? Where are the baby carrots? Yes. Underline, underline, underline. Right. So that's not the soul of a... That's not somebody who's going to... Uh, Get aboard a Spanish galleon. Right. You're not going to live on canned milk for two months because you ran out of root vegetables. And do you think the explorers didn't mind that? Or were they just willing to put up with it because the, their love of the first thing was so great? Or is there or is there a certain kind of person who kind of likes the survivalist, close-to-the-bone can of beans lifestyle? There are so many people, even in our in our modern times, that if they could live on Soylent Green, they would. In fact, they do. Um, yeah, Ted Bundy. You know, a, a lot of people, not Soylent Green, I guess, Soylent. There are a lot of people for whom the sensual uh, pleasures, food and drink, um, just don't factor into their- And might even connote weakness. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Like, oh- Decadence. T- you want things to taste oh, good? Ken wants electricity at his house. If so I could just eat paste, I would, and you can. He wants a soothing noise at night so his sleep can be refreshing. But, you know, who knows, like, wealth motivates some people. The the pursuit of wealth motivates some people to the point that they that they uh, don't don't sleep and don't you have think, human relationships. You think some of these explorers are just the equivalent of a modern-day soulless finance guy or, or a home day trader? Like, this is their, this is their get-rich-quick scheme? That has gold? to be, that has to motivate some, but also I think that the desire to have your name live in the annals of history, to be the first person to set foot somewhere, um, 
you know, that seems a little more noble. That's all, it also powers people, and then and the, the noblest goal of all would be scientific discovery. The, right. You know the the unknown horizon, the the threshold at the end of the world. At different periods, people have been motivated by a desire to spread the gospel, which, as you know, I mean, to us, no downside. <laughs> there's no downside to spreading the gospel. Nobody, but nobody ever got the worst of that. You know, to us in the 21st century, um, we look back at the at the Spanish desire to convert the New World to uh, their version of Catholicism by the sword. Uh, you know, we're very critical of it, but people uh, walking through neighborhoods with pencil protectors ringing doorbells trying to convert people to their way of thinking we're only mildly contemptuous of. We're annoyed by it. <laughs> this is the best thing you can say about Mormon missionaries is we've, we're, we're only mildly annoying. Only mildly annoying. We're no longer, uh, you know, we're no longer slaughtering the families that don't answer the doorbell. I was, I was sitting on my porch the other day and two young men in short-sleeved white shirts, which is amazing. Like, you would think they would try and camouflage themselves. They were walking across the street up the sidewalk. And, you know, I'm my driveway's fairly long, so I'm kind of way back off the street, sitting on my porch. And one of the kids, he had to be 80 yards away, called across the street, Hey, really relaxing, eh? And I looked up and, you know, here were these kids. And they were on they were on a separate mission. You know, they were going from house they to had, house. They had but an over appointment. There. But, uh, but I was, you know... All I could do was, you know, give a friendly nod like, that's right, you know, just just relaxing. Thanks for checking in. Why didn't you say, I do a podcast with a Mormon guy? <laughs> I Hey, listen, some of my best friends are Mormons, so you can leave me out. But, I mean, did, there are all kinds of, I mean, part of Christianity is evangelizing. It's right there in the, sure. in the, the it's in the book. Spread the word. Hopefully, I mean, the book doesn't say... Do it by the sword, right? It doesn't I say. I mean, you're free to think, um, you know, offer it as a as a friendly invitation and not as a force of cultural annihilation. That's right. That's right. Although, Although it's, it's kind of implied, if the stakes are heaven and hell, you know, what are you going to do? That does excuse a whole lot of uh, of zealotry. Think about all the Huguenots that were drowned by Charlemagne. I mean, I we don't we don't shed a tear for them. I can't think about the Huguenots. I get too sad. <laughs> So all these different motivations that have compelled people over the centuries. I mean, there's a whole school of of uh, of science devoted to trying to understand and interpret human migration. Without human migration, there wouldn't be. Well, we wouldn't have infected the world like a plague. Yeah, we think of exploration as a thing that uh, a certain period of uh portuguese people did you right. know a certain a certain thing that a certain thing that white ocean going peoples did for a few hundred years but obviously for the earth to be populated there was a lot more exploring going on than that and there's a and yeah, i mean right there's a whole i think of when you when you think of kind of a distribution of talent within any given human population i mean if you if you really if you think about any group of a thousand people, you're going to have people that are naturally inclined to be good administrators, naturally inclined to be proselytizers, shopkeepers, farmers. I mean, all of those different jobs seem chefs, to cellists. chefs. That's right. Uh, complainers, whiners. Um, you can do that and have another job. You can be a cellist and a whiner. <laughs> there, but there does seem to be a kind of uh, 
of distribution curve of inclination mm-hmm. because I would not be satisfied to be a farmer, but there are people who love to be farmers. And I don't think it's just how you're raised. You know, I think it's something to do with um, whatever, however it is that nature works, uh, whatever the mysteries of God's hand are. I, I've always felt that I was someone that was made to live on the edge of of uh, of a settlement. Yeah, you're going to go to Slab City. Yeah, I'm not I'm not somebody that lives in the center of town. I'm not involved in the in the day-to-day uh you probably you shouldn't know, have run for city council if you don't want to be involved in the day-to-day and live in the center I, of town. I learned that <laughs> I, that was a learn by doing episode. But you know, I just have always felt like if there was, you know, wherever the border of the of the the um the the civilized area was, I didn't I'm not somebody that wants to live like a thousand miles from the nearest person. I just want to be the last person you meet on the road out of town. What's the appeal of that to you? Uh, One side without neighbors? Is it, um, well, and, and is it, uh, actually a feeling of well being? You don't feel hemmed in? You I don't got, feel, you got an escape route? I don't feel hemmed in. I like to observe. So I like to be able, I would love to be able to sit above a town on a, on, you know, where the road goes into the forest and be able to just see everyone that comes and goes, kind of look at the life of the town, feel involved, feel like... But, but to have a godlike sense of Yeah, and sort of like, superiority. Oh, old Roderick lives out by the edge of the, you know, he he runs the... Why don't you have a crazy old mansion on the hill because your parents ran the tanning factory? Or yeah, something? that's kind of, well, that's sort of what I'm trying to accomplish out here in... Uh, in in lonely Normandy park to, to be like on the edge of the town here. Yeah, one of the gatekeepers of the Southern gates. Is this how you explain to yourself the narrative of moving to the suburbs? It's not, a, <laughs> it's not, it's not getting old and selling out in any way. It's moving to the periphery so I can see society more clearly. But it is, it is something that's, that's in my nature that I've, that I've struggled with throughout the course of my life. Even like, when you lived in cities. Yeah. I do. I belong here only temporarily and where do i belong you know i i i've done a lot of traveling and i always felt most comfortable kind of if not in motion then um you know then somewhere in an orbit rather than than in the heart i don't feel comfortable under the dome i feel comfortable just outside the dome motion's good for i mean i don't want to say demons but motion's good for any kind of a troubled soul. I wonder if all these explorers were just unhappy. Was, well, Ma- was the, Magellan running around the world or was he running away from something inside Magellan? Yeah, that's, uh, and there are, I mean, migration happens when there are pressures on a population where there aren't enough jobs or there aren't good opportunities, the conditions are bad. You talked about There's how a certain famine. percentage of people want to fa- fall in certain roles. And that, you know, as long as that matches what will, what the sustainable economy is there, that'll work. As soon as you have too many of the wrong kind of person, uh, the colony has to change. Yeah. And, and people move, uh, in search of opportunity. People also move when they feel chased, you know, like, like war or desertification, like your environment can become uninhabitable and you have to move. But you also, I mean, every every you sort don't of, want to live like a refugee. You you don't. Um, you don't have to live like a refugee. Did I get the lyrics wrong? Well, you said you don't want to live like a refugee. Some of us do, but you don't have to. But what did Tom Petty say? I can't. He remember. said you don't have to live like oh, a refugee. That makes more sense. 
And then, and then uh, the bass player said, "Don't have to live like bread." But so, so I mean, in a lot of mammalian uh, societies, like the 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 boys coming of age get pushed out. Yeah, if you've got a new alpha gorilla, he's going to have to go start his own pod somewhere. Right, get get gone, and so human populations just naturally, well, they're just migratory by by nature. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a implication of exponential growth. Right. And it was only the advent of, of technology that enabled people to travel long distances and, and, you know, germs, guns, and steel enabling. Got to have your three things. That's right. <laughs> you want ink, you want yes. gold. But yes. you, first you need to have guns G- and germs, germs and ink and, and steel. steel and domesticated cattle and grain. I figured it out. We should just say Aztec gold, and then you avoid this whole problem. Oh, sure. Okay. Aztec should, gold. should we redo the show from the top? Yeah, and just, just, say, just say Aztec gold well, this time. We can just fly the word Aztec <laughs> in and just put it over Inca, and then your whole, then the whole joke will be be ruined, be incomprehensible. That won't be the first time. Um. So so we do think of the age of exploration and the age of colonization as as you were saying a pretty localized phenomenon that was uh that was very much like once we had clipper ships portugal and spain and holland um i guess not clipper ships going out into had, the world once we had good sails and and spreading spreading only disease and war and catholicism and, and stealing everything that they touched but stealing some ink stealing some stealing ink. some gold but for for there to be peoples in the Americas, they had to have migrated there at an earlier time. And and there's, I mean, human migration theory, there are, just as there are in any of the social sciences, as many theorists as there are uh, grains on uh, the, the sand of the beaches of the world. The chalkboard says, number one, Africa. Number two, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> right. Number three, human race. And there's still disagreement about a lot of the middle steps, right? There are a lot. There's it's all it's all prehistoric. There's a lot of disagreement, and and as we are more and more able to decode the genome, um, in some ways that is clarifying. In a lot of ways, it's it just adds to the confusion because you know the genome can tell a story to a certain point, but uh, the genome can is easily contaminated, uh, and it's also it's not a complete record. It's not a complete record, so. But the desire to the desire to leave home, I mean, it most of the population of urban areas in the world today grow by by migration rather than by by internal growth. Like the, right. the citizens of Seattle are not having enough babies to cause the population to increase by 20%. And even if they did, those kids will never afford a house in Seattle. Well, so. sure. I mean, but they all, except for the ones that went to Northwest school and then they moved down <laughs> to Nor- Normandy park. <laughs> but, um, so populations tend to, in the modern world, I mean, there's, there's local migration, there's intranational migration. And that's the majority of migration actually is people moving around in their own country. I mean, just walk around Seattle and ask people what state they were born in. Uh, Washington is going to be, not the majority answer anymore. Maybe? That's right. I don't you know. know. It's it's uh, it's more and more unusual to find someone that was born in Seattle. Um, and so you and I, you know, high five. Am I Ooh, right? I do really feel like it's some sense of, uh, even though I'm a bit of a fraud because I lived overseas for so long. Well, I grew up in Alaska, but that makes me more authentic, not less. 
Oh, same with Korea. <laughs> for sure. What could be more Seattle than living in Korea for 11 years? <laughs> but there, you know, but 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 that era of um of transcontinental, transoceanic um what we think of as conquest, but what I think you know, in the grand scope of it's history, just a, it's just a road trip. Is <laughs> just migration, yeah. right? Because those, uh, sure, that that initial contact was violent, but and there was a lot of violence in the migration. But there's the force that drives most of it for the individual level is my crops died. Let's go over here. Yeah, or new opportunity. My my dad's mad at me. Uh, let's move over here. And what the historic record masks is just the violence intrinsic to every migration that's ever happened. Nobody moves, moves into a new territory where there's anything else and, uh, and doesn't encounter violence almost immediately. You can't it's even move into of, a new homeowners association without getting a few. Oh angry my God, I'm in a battle with both of my neighbors. <laughs> I have two neighbors and within three months of living there, I'm in a, I'm in a battle. See, with this is why you got to live on the edge of town. You'll only, you'll only have one neighbor to fight with. That's the thing. And then open fields. And it's, and it really, it really does feel in some ways prehistoric. I moved into a neighborhood and both of my neighbors were encroaching over the property line by, you know, by dozens of feet. And when I addressed the issue with them, they both were, they both had hostile reactions. And I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in some crazy like you're in some you some cow ranchers versus farmers uh western yeah or it's something super deep where it's like as soon as you plant a stake in the ground somebody else comes it's like it's basically like is should there be private property or should there not as soon as you put a stake in the ground somebody's disputing it but as far as the theories of human migration go they just as we have kind of danced around already in this episode it's very political Right, as soon as you in what way? Well, in in that land and identity and nationhood and what constitutes a people. I mean, nationhood and identity is super rooted to the land for a lot of people. This is our land. This is where we're from. This is this is who we are, and and. To, I guess for everyone, that's an illusion. It's just whether your people came here 10 years ago or whether your people came here 2,000 years and ago. And how did you get here, right? Mm-hmm. Are you Korean? No. And there's a clear distinction between you and the other uh, the other occupants of Seoul because you, you, know, you look different and you speak a different language. But language isn't – language is sure. nation establishing, but you could have grown up in Korea speaking Korean. What if I love K-pop enough that it reaches across those barriers? That's right. So you can't – it's not de- determined by language. It, until not very long ago, was determined pretty uh, ironclad by what we thought of as race. race yeah. But as we explore the genome and realize that race is also just kind of um, – you know, to, to a UFO, race would be – not really perceptible. Um, That's what I learned on all those Star Trek episodes where they're like, people used to judge each other based on skin appearance. Captain, that is quite illogical. That's outrageous. Yes, but in the mid-20th century, Spock. <laughs> it's weird because there's one person of each race on this crew, and yet we don't see race. So <laughs> The Enterprise is funny because it, pre- it is pretty much like a white crew. Like Their idea of diversity is like, we have a Scottish guy. 
Right, a guy, a guy from East Block, and then on, and then on the bridge crew, we'll have like one African American right. person, one Asian American person, one Vulcan, one Klingon, and like at the time, that is so progressive that like Southern TV stations won't air it. But you watch it now, and you're like, oh no, they have like one token receptionist, <laughs> like at every station. Yeah. There's a green skin girl. They all have they all have good boobs though. It doesn't matter what race you are. Well, that just means the future is going to cure a lot of problems. Yeah. It's going to cure starvation. It's going to cure disease. And it's going to cure bad boobs. Ken, we've uh, come up with some exciting t-shirt uh, designs in the last couple of months. What can you tell us about t-shirts going forward? I like the December ones. After years of requests, we have finally decided there should be an omnibus shirt with a mail truck on it. Yay! Mail truck shirt! And it's fun. It's got Mr. Zip driving the truck, that kind of nightmare-inducing representative of the post office's zone improvement plan. And he's having a fun time driving his mail truck on its last legs. And it says omnibus. And then there's a different shirt. About- he's, he's kind of ghost riding, isn't he? He's a little bit out of the truck. Like he's only got one arm and, and one leg. And he's leaning the out the right side, but that is correct. Yeah, that's, that's right. the, that's the right side. His hood is up. It's smoking. He's yeah. He's quite a, he's quite a rakish young man. Uh, he's a real daredevil here. Yeah. Huh. And then this is the de Havilland Beaver, right? You talk about the aviation one because I can't remember what this is. It is. It's the it's the de Havilland Beaver from the front end. Um, it's landing on a Alaskan lake with its with its uh, sea pods with its pontoons. That's that's or sea right. pods, as we call it. That's right. It's a uh, it's it's a float plane, as we say in the in the parlance. Uh, it shows its very distinctive and characteristic radial engine from the front. So there's no mistaking the profile of the the Haviland Beaver. These are some good-looking shirts about some popular omnibus entries. Two new designs every month, so these will be gone at the end of December. Don't miss out. That's right. This ad is this ad has a time limit. You've got what? Two over two weeks. So Almost three weeks. Go to omnibusproject.com slash store. You'll always see the links to our two new shirts that our friend Dave has up for us at Mediocrity. You'll also find a link to our Tee Public store where we have a wide array of stuff with the Omnibus logo on it. Hoodies, uh, what else? Hats, I think. Mugs. Onesies? Phone, phone cases. Yeah, onesies, but only in adult sizes. Ha 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 ha. If you show up at my house in an omnibus adult onesie, yes, you, John? Can, you can spend the night. How does that sentence end? Maybe in my guest room, but definitely you can spend the night. Uh, so don't forget, if you're interested in omnibus gear for a limited time only, Head to omnibusproject.com slash store. That's omnibusproject.com slash store. Migration is political in that it suggests, um, not, it's not so much that we have a proprietary interest in places, but that culture, uh, uh, culture influences culture, right? You can feel an ownership. You can feel a res- um you can feel a sense of belonging even in places where, I mean, there there are tiers of belonging, and right, um, and it can happen quick. It can. Like I had a, like a Batman sense of proprietary ownership of Seoul, Korea, 
when I was in the fifth grade, you know, a city where I had only lived for a few years and didn't fit in at all. But you're, you're so shaped by your atmosphere that you really, that you see those connections. You feel them very keenly. You do. And, and I mean, in the Americas, if you are an Italian immigrant in the United States or a Spanish immigrant to Mexico, your origins in Europe are not very different. And the distinctions aren't, uh, you know, from the standpoint of us in the 21st century, those distinctions like a Spanish person or an Italian person in 1500, there we think of them as just sort of white Europeans. But not very many generations apart, uh, the, the great-great-grandchildren of that Spanish immigrant to Mexico and of that Italian immigrant to New York City now are perceived as the opposite side of a big cultural divide. Sure, and and different races and different cultures that have then different, uh, different like proprietary sense of. And it's because of the migration. It's because of where they moved to and the the new culture that shaped them. And the culture that that was that then sort of produced as a virtue of that migration. So. In the mid-20th century, this stuff was all very exciting to people. We were in a, we were in a, a, a time where the era of exploration was kind of drawing to a close. Mm-hmm. There weren't that many places that hadn't been at least explored by modern, you know, There's like a 30-year period where we get to the South Pole, we get to Mount Everest, you know, the moon's coming up, but... Earthly exploration kind of ends in one generation. Yeah, there are some places in Siberia that you think no one's been to, but then you get there and there's like, oh yeah, somebody came through here already. I mean, they're up the Amazon. We've already talked about uncontacted uncontacted people, but those are people who got there uh, just somewhere and then somehow got cut off. Right? They they went a little bit further than their neighbors, and and their culture became about the isolation and the cutoff. Right. Um, and so, you know, and that even, I mean, there was, there were over 200 years, uh, where Japan tried to, <laughs> tried to isolate themselves from the world. Uh, and, and it was only, it was only technology. I mean, I'm talking about in, in fairly recent history. Sure, 19th century. Um, it was only the technology of the cannon and the steamship that, uh, that broke that blockade. Um, but in the mid twentieth century, there started to be the uh, there started to be exploration of the adventure sports kind around the world in eighty days. And I often think that is an implication of all the places being gone. You know, once you can't stand on a new exciting uh, vantage point anymore, you kind of have to make the goal a little more baroque. Right. You know, I'm going to be the first person to do X in a balloon, right, or in an airplane, or. Uh, the other direction or this combination of places. Yeah. The first person um, to unicycle from, from Boston to Los Angeles. Because the pioneer impulse is still there and the, the, uh, the game board for it is gone. And the, and testing oneself and, you know, and I guess the measure of man, um, how, I mean, making it to the South pole is not a question of, can you walk this distance or dog sled this right. distance? It's, it's, not, it's not the most in the fittest guy who did it first. Right. It's, can you survive the, the hardship? Uh, can you live without your baby carrots? And the logistical challenges as well. Right. You know, there's, it, it tests a bunch of different skills once it's no longer, uh, you know, who can make it up this, who's the fittest set of arms to make it up this cliff face. 
But the the mid twentieth century, the the late nineteenth century, uh, up to fairly recently, um, was the era of ethnography and the era of cultural anthropology. Um, the the desire to have not only theories of uh, culture, but theories of race, theories of um, theories of of psychology and fitness, even before psychology was. A, was a discipline um, in eras where where science and pseudoscience and theory and cultural studies all were still in a kind of primordial soup of intellectual um, like pursuit where scientists still tended to be rich uh, lay people who had a who had an idea and pursued it. We were still in the immediate aftermath of Darwin and the like the fact that you could misinterpret Darwin and misinterpret Marx kind of at your leisure, right? You could take Darwinism and apply it socially, mm-hmm. economically. Um, and just, I guess with the enlightened intellectual idea that uh, that I'm going to I'm going to learn something like I, I'm going to learn something from these other people. You know, the earlier right. explorers were trying to imprint the new territory with their own stamp the ethnographers have a lighter touch and it's post-enlightenment thinking right the 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 early explorers i can't guarantee that i'm right like this is a pluralistic world where these new peoples have something to teach me as well and also the idea that uh, that uncontacted people were pure right and and angelic they hadn't been uh they hadn't been corrupted all yeah. of these ideas were in this stew, and the scientific method was applied to it ad hoc. Um, so not all the science was great? Not, not all the science is great. If you're Michael Rockefeller, and you have the money, and you want to go live, um, you want to go find the headhunters, you know, it. You can, you can make a case. You can go back to the Explorers Society in, in New York or in Whitechapel, and... Um, and give a lecture, and all the all the long beards are harumph harumphing about it, and and in the end, some I think of the, the Royal Geographic Society is in South Kensington. Not in sorry, right sorry, 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 sorry. You're of course, of course, right. The, the residents of future Neo London are going to be <laughs> furious if we don't get that right. Um, yeah, Whitechapel. What am I even talking about? But uh, a lot of those theories and a lot of that exploration did add to what became the kind of you know, a global geographic understanding, cultural understanding. A lot of it was also uh, marred by insensitivity or in, sure. in a lot of ways by really super flawed theory. But I, you know, at, at, at best romanticization of these, of these people, but I, I, I'm sure it preserved a lot of knowledge that otherwise would have been lost in a very rapidly changing century. If you think of, if you think of migration and technology working hand in glove to, um, to go out into the world driven by, uh, a, de- a desire to, to make money, a desire to, um, to spread your way of thinking, which you presume is best then yes, the late 19th century to the 20th century was a period of where the world was incredibly vulnerable. Um, all these Tahitian islands, all of the Amazon, I mean, we see it now. There, The uncontacted people that remain are not, 
are not in jeopardy because because evangelists are coming to change their religion. They're just in jeopardy because people are chopping down their trees. The the lumberjacks and giving them Netflix. Yeah, the lumberjacks in the Amazon don't care about the uncontacted people's culture. Um, they're not they're not against it or for it. They just want they're just coming. Uh, they're coming for the material wealth. And that was also true in the 20th century. And this this desire to be culturally anthropological uh, was a desire to preserve or at least understand things in their own context before they were, in some ways, maybe inevitably destroyed or preserved in a, in a, in a glass box. One of these people, one of these sort of... Um, you, you can only describe them as a generation of characters, really. Um, Are they all eccentrics? And I'm not sure whether it's the eccentricity that drives the, uh, the science or the science that drives the eccentricity. But if you think about Darwin, um, Darwin, was, Darwin put himself on a boat where he was, you know, a, a naturalist, like not really, a, not as important as a barrel maker. Right, yeah. I mean, there are, below cabin boy. Yeah, there are people that are that matter, and then there are people that are there because they represent a kind of aristocratic interest in, uh, in, um, in the the natural world from the standpoint of a of a scientist rather than a, rather than just a like, are these birds good to eat? Can we chop down these trees and sell them on the market? In the twentieth century, and I'm talking about during the period right around the Second World War, uh, a Norwegian by the name of Tor Heyerdahl was kind of trying to make a name for himself as a young man, as a a cultural anthropologist, or as just an anthropologist primarily. Um, Putting himself, he he and his wife at at a very young age, part of their honeymoon actually, um, headed out into the South Pacific. Uh, they went under the pretext of an academic mission to... That's not a very fun honeymoon. Well, it is if you're like 22 and 20 and you're both super hot Norwegian science people. Uh, they seem to really be into science and into doing science together. And they were going They were going down to the South Pacific to research... Um, Migration, but but animal migration between those islands as part of just the general interest in the uh, in Polynesia that was that was happening at the time. They went to uh, the island of Fatu Hiva, which was you know part of the kind of uh, Tahitian French Polynesian uh, universe. And they got there and decided they were kind of into the wilding a little bit. They were going to go down there. I'm looking at pictures of the young Hydrodels, and they are indeed very attractive. They're super foxy. I mean, they're Scandinavian. Of course they are. And super into each other. Um, and they went to Fatuhiva, you know, with, a, with an academic mandate of a kind, a young, young people that could afford to go do this. The age uh, of Google means at any historical topic, and we do this anonymous all the time, you can really judge how attractive the participants are 
at a at a moment's notice, which was not which always matters. which was not always true in, in class. <laughs> like as, as as soon as as soon as we're researching somebody, you and I both have that one to ten scale. Like, is this person foxy? Yeah. Like in ninth grade when they <laughs> talked about the Huguenots, you know, nobody was ever like, I wonder what Catherine de Medici yeah, was. Or she I pretty, what, was she pretty hot? I mean, we made Joan of Arc, I think, in our in our imaginations, a lot hotter than she might have actually been in real life. Did she really look like uh, one of the Go Go's? I mean, I don't know. Probably. I mean. In Bill and Ted, she does so. But they decided they were going to actually kind of, as we as we problematically say, go native, and uh, and actually survived, kind of living off the land on Fatuhiva. We, um, we should talk about the Norwegian context of exploration at the time. They would have they came from a culture that was one of the last outposts of of uh, explorer friendly life, and in a way, one of the first outposts of European explorer-friendly life. If you believe that the first people to arrive... Vikings. Uh, in, yeah, in the in the Americas were... The first Europeans to arrive in the Americas were were uh, Scandahuvians. But headlines in the, you know, as late as the 30s were still being made by people like Nansen and Amundsen, who's, who's been on the omnibus before. Right. Um, the, at a time when the rest of the world, it, it wasn't really top of mind. You know, your, your heroes... Your heroes in America or China or France were not hardy outdoorsmen looking for the next place the way Norwegian culture seemed to prize, just because of their proximity, I guess, to unexplored polar regions. Yeah, that's the thing. At the time, the only unexplored regions left were polar ones. And so the Norwegians kind of had the, they presumed that they had the experience with that kind of that environment. That must mean something. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Belgians are only a few hours further from the pole, but they weren't like, you know what? We got this. We got a chance at this. Here we go. Just pack up the chocolate and coffee and we're on. Even the Swedes. Like, well, we'd have to cross Norway to get there. So God, what's the, what's it's the point? all the way up there. But yeah, I think that I think that probably has a lot to do with it. And those Norwegians influenced subsequent Norwegians, but also that mentality kind of uh, then went went back to Europe and the Americas, and we saw, um, we saw all of the the uh, well the the Lindberghs and the Amelia Earharts. Yeah, avi- aviation and then space gave it gave exploration two big boosts, technology boosts that maybe but, maybe we will not see again. But for a while there, between the Portuguese and the and aviation and space, there there were there was this generation of Norwegians. All you had was flinty, leather faced Norwegian men. And I mean, in a way, they are the least suited to explore Polynesia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what's hired all doing? I mean, I get the impulse. Like, if I could choose either to go to um, uh, Novaya Zemlya or Tahiti, I would also pick Tahiti. But while he was there and and studying the um, studying the flora and fauna, he also got into the ethnography and tried to understand the local culture and religion. And they, you know, they. Uh, he learned some of the language and in the process started to develop a theory and the conventional wisdom was that Polynesia was expl- was settled by migrant explorer peoples from Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at Polynesian I- people and they, they seem like a subgroup of, of the indigenous populations of uh of asian archipelagos yeah island hopping from india and china down to indonesia southeast asia indonesia and And if you think about if you think about uh southeast asia as 
being an area that was conquered by the Chinese Mm -hmm. who were a kind of Northern people that moved South, what we think of now as the sort of Asian population of that area, they were actually pushing out uh, indigenous populations that were, were much more akin to Polynesians. This was the theory, but this was the accepted, generally accepted theory, but Tor Heyerdahl started to develop an alternate theory, which was that because of the currents of the South Pacific and because of um, things that he identified in Polynesian myth and lore and origin stories, uh, uh, connections to the cultures of South America, uh, specifically Peru, he started to develop a theory in his head that uh, the original Polynesians actually came from the from the east, from South America, all the way across the Pacific, rather than island hopping from. Because most of the, the Polynesian west. islands he's studying are a good deal closer to the Asian side of the Pacific Rim than the South American side. They are, but they're way out there. And once those yes. South Pacific, Southern I mean, it's Pacific, a, it's 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 a bit of a mystery how those islands even got settled because the navigational feats required to get there, you know, would would have daunted any European in the age of sail, right? Pretty, much less people on rafts. Pretty incredible. And when you think about it, once you understand the Southern currents, the way the ocean is, uh, you know, the the ocean works as a giant gyre uh, in different hemispheres. Um. It's kind of even more incredible because a lot of time coming from Asia, you would be sailing against what was the current. Hmm. So he developed this theory that you could put a raft in, in Peru and follow the prevailing tides and winds, sail to Tahiti with very little technology, with no, um, in a way with no rudder. Uh, that a big enough raft with enough provisions and a and a settling population. What's the distance like? And there's not a lot of islands in the way. I mean, once you pass the Galapagos, the distance is about six or seven thousand kilometers from Callao, Peru to let's say Papiti Tahiti. Yeah, almost so, five thousand miles by the most direct route. Right, five thousand miles about about seven thousand kilometers. Yikes. Um, but. If, you know, with the current uh, working as it does, Tor estimated that uh, that an unpowered raft with a rudimentary sail could actually make the journey in about three months. 97 days, he said, was the, was the fastest that you could make that journey. And that seemed very doable and also very plausible. Plausible in the, in wow. the same way that, uh, that you see... Palm trees appear on on distant islands because the coconut just floated there. Uh, birds alighted upon a uh, a log. And but you do have to posit an ancient uh, uh, Incan person, not a, not ink and person, but right. an ancient Peruvian. I mean, Tyrell knew those islands were out there. This person has to just have three months of provisions and just head out, or. They are fishermen. They get lost. And they get lost. They get blown out to sea. They're able to survive Imagine from the ocean. Imagine finding Tahiti accidentally. I know. After Score. three months of like, 
I'm still alive. I'm I'm eating flying fish and and wait a minute, like whoa, hello. The problem is that you know, you, in order to have a sustainable population, you'd need to have more than just uh just a boat of of a couple of lost fishermen, right? You you eventually need to have a mermaid. A mermaid. Um and and there is some suggestion and we'll get to that in a minute that um, what you have is Peruvians washing up on the shore and finding people who have migrated from the Asian side. Um, it's, it's, I think in human history, a long, it, it, you have to go pretty far back in, into the mists of time to actually arrive somewhere where there's nobody. That's why the genomic record is so incomplete because it's so likely to be a melange of right. different complicated migrations meeting up and then splitting. Yeah, I mean, you show up somewhere, and there's a there's already a uh, Robinson Crusoe there. I thought you were going to say there's a Red Robin there. There's a Red Robin there, and they're serving big hot fudge sundays that aren't as good as they used to be. Weirdly, <laughs> uh, so it it's not until after the war that uh, that Tor decides, or Tor has uh, has advanced his theory to the point he's written his thesis, he's tried to get it published. No one wants anything to do with it because it it flies in the face of not just conventional wisdom but kind of logic um and he is just a bit of a dabbler he's you know he's not he's young still mm-hmm. and so not really a fully fledged member of the national geographic society and in fact they reject his proposal Aww. uh and he he's he decides or they reject his thesis and he decides that the way to prove it the way to get the attention uh is to actually build a Stone Age raft um, using the material available to uh, to someone in Peru, uh, you know, to a to a, a pre-contact Peru. No, no steel, no, um, you know, nothing but what would really be stone tools, and to put himself in the water. Uh, Tor cannot swim. <laughs> and he has no history of. I mean, he's the one Norwegian that that has never been on a boat. Uh, well, I guess that would be a great test of it then. If even this guy right. can do it, this ding dong. Um, then think what an experienced South American fisherman could do. So he goes around. He tries to get support for this, this idea. This is a very post-war idea, by the way. That you should. Um, that you can sell your idea with smart marketing. Right. It's hard to imagine another time where an explorer would have been like, I know nobody's reading my paper. I'm going to, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to duplicate it with newsreels. And there was a, there was a, a super, uh, consciousness of publicity, um, in Tor and his eventual crew, uh, that kind of, in their own retelling of the story, you know, of course they mask it with a lot of humility. It can get in the way of science, right? When you've got a, a myth to promote. Right. When it seems like a publicity stunt, but it is part of that era of, of lay explorer who, um, you know, there are, there was a lot of conventional wisdom that was dispelled by experimentation. Right. And a lot of, a lot of those huffy long beards at the Royal Geographical Society um, found out that, oh, it turns out that that some young upstart actually um, 
actually ended up being able to demonstrate their revolutionary theory. Their monocle splashes into their soup. So Tor recruits a crew, uh, and maybe just by coincidence, they're all Norwegians. Oh, I was about to say, is it a ragtag crew? A motley crew? It is not. It's a ragtag motley crew if you're drawing only from Norway uh, and Sweden. There was one Swede. It's like the World War II movie, except every soldier is like... Uh, Christiansen, <laughs> right. Torvaldsen, <laughs> Henriksen, and uh, and yeah, the the uh, the the diversity, uh, the diversity, um, the diversity hires one Swede. was one Swedish guy, but uh, there were a couple of yeah, World War. II, I mean, this is the era immediately after World War Two, where uh, where the world must feel very different. I mean, this area this area was part of it, it was very in contention during the war. But probably easy to find people with South Pacific naval experience. Is that who, is that who he got? It is not. No, he oh. got um, – there. there is one person on the ship. His name was Eric Hesselberg. He was an actual – He'd been on a boat He'd once, been on a boat. But it was a ferry to Estonia. He could use a sextant. He he was a sailor, understood you know the basics of navigation. Is it cheating to use a sextant? Was he trying to only duplicate navigational stuff that might have been available to a – how long ago are we talking here? When has this migration happened? Uh, BC well, or AD? Oh, no. He's thinking that the, that the migration happened in 1200, okay. 1100. Pre-contact, but – But not long. But not that long. I mean, an era where, um, where the archaeological record is pretty clear that the Aztec world and the Incan world were – I mean, they had they large could, cities. They could they, navigate by the stars. Yeah, they they were um, they were certainly you know maybe pre modern, but but industrialized or or urban. Uh, but in a boat with no rudder, why doesn't it have a rudder? Well, I mean, it has Does a think the Incas didn't have a rudder. Or? It has a rudimentary rudder okay. and a and a kind of like rudimentary sail. But it's not that you are you they they weren't able to adjust their path, really. Um, they couldn't fight the current. You can't steer way. that much. No. You're kind of at the mercy of the Pacific. And in fact, it was it was something that they were always mindful of. If one of them fell off, they couldn't really turn the boat around. Oh. Um, you, there were, there were instances where they needed, you know, during storms or whatever, they needed to tie themselves to their boat because the alternative... If one of them was swept off, you know, they would just sit sit and watch them bob into the distance. Much much is made of this, by the way, at the Contiki Museum in Oslo. Oh, have you been to the Contiki Museum? A couple of years oh, ago. Oh, no kidding. Why am I doing this show? You should be doing this show. I don't actually remember much of the... Con- <laughs> it's next to the much better Fromm Museum, which is about, which is built around the uh, a Norwegian polar exploration ship, and it's all about Arctic exploration. Oh. And it's that's kind of the flashy museum out there. And across the street is the little Kontiki Museum, which I think Heyerdahl might have funded himself. Because as you mentioned, he is a bit of a self-promoter and a marketing-minded explorer. Actually, it was the Kontiki Museum was the brainchild of one of the uh, the men on his crew, but it wasn't... Tor. Oh, interesting. Um, it was, you know, uh, these guys it, all went on to other exploits. It has a bit of a family foundation feel, and it's all built around. They still have the they have the original Contiki raft, and at first you're like, oh, it's kind of big, and then you realize, well, it's not really big to be on there with twelve guys for uh, what, however long it was, a matter of months, right? Right. Um, they show the uh, they show the documentary. I remember because Tor hired all. Uh, I mean. I don't believe the director wins the Oscar, but his movie about the expedition won a Best Documentary Oscar. In fact, Tor Heyerdahl 
was the director of the documentary. But, and, the, but the producer wins the Oscar is what I'm saying. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Best documentary. So he is not theoretic. I, I think the Oscar might be on display there, but it's not inscribed to him. It's inscribed to whoever produced. The, so you watch a, you know, a great first person movie about their adventures, um, which makes much of the lashing yourself to the sail when the, when the seas are stormy. Right. The, uh, there's like, I remember, uh, there was a, there's kind of a kid's version of the story that follows parallel to the exhibit. So, you know, at a lower level of the wall, a child can follow and it's all narrated by a happy crab who's like, let me tell you about my friend Tor. And when you get to the end of that, my kids were kind of half enjoying, they were a little too old for the happy crab, but they were enjoying. And when you get to the end, the crab reveals the secret, which is that he's real. Like there actually was a mascot crab aboard the Contiki. I don't remember the name. But uh, this this um, cartoon character who's been narrating the the Contiki adventure for kids actually uh, is based on a real crab. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. I there guess. was a crab, and they they actually had a parrot, a pet parrot by the name of Larita, um, and the parrot uh, was a fun friend who joined them until halfway across the ocean. These guys are like Disney princesses. They are. They've except, got a crab and a parrot. Except the the parrot, like at one point, flew off from the raft and. Uh, like landed in the sea, which is not a parrot's normal environment, and uh, it's a sea parrot, and they just kept sailing on and lost the parrot. Oh, the parrot's a casualty. Yeah, but the crab, the crab remained. I think all the way across. I'm surprised the parrot didn't eat the crab. Uh, well, or the crab eat the parrot in the end because the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the crabs ate the parrot. I thought it was going to be a nice thing, like Noah's Ark, where the parrot flies away, and that's how you know there's dry land, or that's how you know that there are now parrots in French Polynesia. So, uh, were there other casualties? Uh, no. So, so, uh, so Eric Hasselberg was the navigator. They had, um, they had two radio operators and this is another, come on. I know. And that both of them had worked in the Norwegian resistance during the war. And it gives you a sense of, I mean, I don't think that Tor had any intention of being rescued. They were way too far away to be rescued. Uh, even if they had, been able to call for help so and this was as your dad can attest the the uh, the era of shortwave radio um you know the kind of early peak of international shortwave nerds well they could have reached somebody when they did and they were in semi-constant contact with the norwegian embassy which i think was <laughs> That's not who I'd call first. Well, what they had to do was call these guys in Los Angeles, call call um, call shortwave operators around the world. We need you to send this message to the Norwegian embassy. We're doing great, and here are our coordinates. The Norwegian embassy to whom? Is this in Peru or? Uh, well, I guess the Norwegian. Just the Norwegian State Department. Ultimately, send it back to Norway was the was the message. I, I see. Whoever the nearest embassy is. But what they really meant was send this to the New York Times because it became gradually uh, a, a a real news event. Like these guys are out there. It was a news event. Tor was uh, was smart enough to make it a news event that he was attempting this, and he actually got the Peruvian government to aid the preparation because he made the case to them. Hey, we're trying to prove that. French Polynesia 
you know, that, that all of Polynesia was settled by Peruvians. Oh. And the Peruvian government was like, this will... See, si, senor. Yes, this will help us some way. And it's funny to think that Thor, Thor is doing this on the basis just of some very vaguely sketched ideas that the sun creation myth that he heard from a Polynesian guy is similar to some Incan book he read. Yeah, and he named uh, the, he named the boat Contiki uh, after an Incan god, or the Inca creator god, Viracocha, who, uh, who's also known as Contiki. But, you know, like the, like the iconography of Viracocha uh, doesn't not resemble the kind of tiki gods of Polynesia that, that sort of immediately after this became a, uh, a global decorating icon. I mean, the, you know, our, our, Tiki bar American culture comes from World War II. Yeah, it's a Maori word for for an actual, you know, the actual tiki carvings. Um, So if his Viracocha etymology is legit, I guess it's just a coincidence then. Well, that's the thing. That uh, there's a lot of Tor Heyerdahl's um, ethnography that, uh, because subsequent to Contiki, he went on in his life to other adventures, all trying to prove his sort of various migration theories. Um, one of which was that Norway in fact was settled by, uh, Peruvians. No, by people from Azerbaijan. And a lot of that was, <laughs> wait, <laughs> Azerbaijan, isn't that landlocked? Uh, well, that's right. But they would have, they would have traveled up to rivers and mm. then, uh, you know, rivers that were headed to the North Sea. And a lot of that was based on just um, the fact that in Azerbaijani, um, the name of their capital city or, um, oh, yeah, boy. their capital city was Azir. Uh, so it's oh, the kind of thing where a single coincidence let, yeah. lets him think he's onto something. The, the the mythology of Sweden says that they're the, you know that the gods came from Azir, and that is phonetically close enough to Azerbaijan. That I mean, he had a lot of these theories, and one of the problematic aspects of Thor's theories is that his ancient Peruvians were. Um, Tall and blonde. Wait, what? That, that. What does he think happened to these mysterious blonde Peruvians? Well, so he had, he had a lot of theories about Easter Island and the culture of Easter Island, which according to Tor, um, when Europeans first contacted Easter Island, there was a kind of vibrant uh, culture there that was multiracial. There were tall white people on Easter Island. There were short brown people on Easter Island. And then the big people with the big heads. Well, <laughs> there were the, the groups of people on Easter Island uh, in its initial contact when Admiral Rogevin discovered the island in 1722. Um, there were Native Americans, uh, people that, that were kind of identified as people from the Northwest Coast. It's a real melting pot, the Easter Island. There were Polynesians, and there were Anglo 
appearing people. That was in 1722. By the time James Cook got there in 1774, 50 years later, uh, the, uh, the people of Easter Island were entirely Polynesian. There had obviously been a period of great deprivation, and uh, Easter Island was poor, and the people were starving. But somehow but a really diverse group of ocean-going peoples had, had kind of converged on it. Which, according to the oral tradition of Easter Island— there were the ruling class of Easter Island in the pre-contact years were known as the long ears and the, um, the sort of working class of Easter Island were the short ears and somewhere between these this two is a Star Trek episode. I know. Don't you see his ears are long, the short ears, the star bellied sneeches. Um, and so in this 50-year period post-contact, the short ears rebelled against the long ears and killed them all. But so Tor believed that there had – that these, pri- these sort of prehistory Viking explorations of the New World had produced perhaps a race of Americans who were Vikings or Viking descendant who then were – Scandinavian descent through the Americas and then and exploring the side to Polynesia, uh, but that but also that the that the Northwest Coast Indians were also exploring the South Atlantic or I'm sorry the South Pacific. That seems less impossible. Less impossible, right? You get it. You've already got your ocean going. They've got canoes, but that they were all sort of you know out there living together. Um, in a in, in a, a multicultural in a, big, a real Moss Eisley uh, vibe, <laughs> right? Tor also had other theories. He later on in life sailed from uh, Africa to the Bahamas on a raft made in the Egyptian style out of reeds. Oh, uh, to prove that it's that that South America could also have been. Settled by um, Mesopotamians. I guess none of this actually settles the fact of whether it did happen, but the fact that he proved that it could happen is is interesting enough. It's interesting, and it's a possibility that scientists can't reject out of hand now. Well, that's that's thousands of miles. Of course, that didn't happen. They can't reject it out of hand until you start to be able to read the DNA, right? And it's it's so sort it, of it hasn't held up. It's revealed that that Polynesians have mostly um, DNA that can be traced to Asia. Oh, John. But... You're telling me that parrot died for nothing? <laughs> but the crab lived. But uh, but there there is South American indigenous DNA in small quantities that has been demonstrated to be prehistoric. So, so not a, not contaminated by post-age of exploration contact, but DNA that predates that contact. So there so, could have been migration in that direction. It just wasn't the it wasn't the, the primary flow, right? Yeah. And I and it does seem it does seem possible. Um, and in a way, I think what what Contiki proved was that there was a global. There was a global connectedness that our that our kind of um, mythology around the age of exploration that 
you know, that prehistoric peoples walked across a land bridge and settled the Americas, but that they had, had everything within a steady state for thousands of years until right. white people got sales. And then white people got sales and all of a sudden the imbalance, you know, the world became imbalanced. Yeah. Um, but the idea that people were traveling from Africa to South America, from South America to Polynesia, back and forth across the Atlantic and the Pacific on, um, I guess, primitive boats. But when you think about the, the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria, they're pretty I mean, small those, those, boats too. Those boats were the size of a large Winnebago. Um, and not, and a lot, you know, there were an awful lot of, of those boats that didn't make it. The Nina Bago, the Pinta Bago, all this stuff must've really spoken to, uh, like a forties and fifties, uh, era audience that really loved this idea of, uh, this kind of less threatening idea of diversity, you know, kind of the Disney, it's a small world idea that, uh, that, you know, we really were all one people and maybe the Africans knew the Caribbeans and the Egyptians knew the, and the Incans knew the, the, the Polynesians, uh, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a, a sunny, optimistic mid-century children's song version of multiculturalism that people were kind of into. It was very popular uh, at the time. His book was a bestseller. I, I, so in the end, they made it across in a uh, hundred days. Wow. And it's amazing. That's a long time to have a dozen guys on that on that ride. It is. I'm sure they hated each other's guts. You know, and they, they brought water and food. We learned from the Amundsen's airship entry that at least they didn't bring Italians. They didn't, there were no Italians. They were, it was all Scandahoovians. So when they were mad at each other, I'm sure they were just quiet. They bottled it up. They wrote yeah. six-volume memoirs about their feelings. They did. They did. Uh, six-volume memoirs where they never really quite talked about their feelings. They talked <laughs> about their feelings the whole time, but never quite. Um, and, and in proving this was possible, they became international celebrities. They were, um, as you say, the documentary about it won the Academy Award. Um, you know, it made his career. It did not, in the end, uh, Tor Heyerdahl's theories were not accepted by academia. He did not go on to become the great scientist he hoped to be. So still more be. of a celebrity and a popular figure. And I think a very popular figure in Norway, um, you know, one of their, one of their kind of legendary explorers. Maybe the last, huh? But, uh, you know, but a stunt explorer. Uh, weirdly, evil Knievel. an evil Knievel. Weirdly, not the last, because um, once this had been done, people, it, people wanted to do it. Blindfolded people wanted and then... to do it over and over. And in the in the time from the the early fifties to as recently as November two thousand fifteen, <laughs> uh, when the Contiki two. Launched from Peru. The imaginatively named Contiki. He headed to Easter Island. Uh, there have been, not innumerable, because you can enumerate them, but uh, numerous attempts to raft across all the oceans to prove all manner of connection between places. Put your raft in, put five or ten of your closest friends, and set off uh, to follow the current. Um, Are you going to try it? I know you like to be on the edge of things. Uh, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm more, more of the beachcomber model. I like to pick up the, the, uh, the foot filled tennis shoes that come from, 
that come through these ocean gyres. <laughs> you, you like the you like the wreckage of the rafts to wash up. That makes you makes you feel like you've made the right choice. And that concludes Contiki. Entry 692.mt1424, certificate number 18688, in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, you may be living in a, in a one-continent Pangaea world where there is no need for uh, ocean migration. Or you could all be ocean dwellers where your big migrations are across land. Can you imagine our, our uh, cephalopod listeners uh, wondering if they can walk across oh, sure. uh, Mexico to, sure. to get to the Caribbean? They climb up uh, and go over a mountain and they get to the top of the mountain, which is 2,500 feet. It's like a Contiki-sized <laughs> thing, but it actually is a Winnebago. Like the, It's made of... Like they've tried to make shell uh, wheels out of seashells. They're rolling laboriously across the, the desert. Um, so yeah, we would love to hear about your your inverse Kantiki wanderings uh, from your era. Um, you can send those to us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can find us, uh, you can share them with your fellow uh, omnibus uh, aficionados at the Futurelings Facebook site or subreddit or Discord. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, etc. at Omnibus Project or at John Roderick. I added an extra syllable, John Roderick. John Roderick. It's a John hey, Roderick. Hey, get out of my Zeppelin. Giovanni Rodrigo. Uh, and at Ken Jennings, you can send us physical items if you, you can. have if you have access to PO Box five five seven four four. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. What do you got there? You got some mail, didn't you? Open in the mail David bag. Sheehy has sent you this. What is it? Whoop. Not us, to you. Oh, it's some weird Adidas performance underwear. Now, tell me what performance underwear is. What exactly, what feats are you performing with well, the underwear clad part of your body? I have no idea. It's also size XXL. Yeah, he. Uh, the note says extra XX large, performant nubile. Thanks, David. Hmm. I don't know, and it kind of. It, did you half open it, or was it already half? Oh opened? no, I I do not open your underwear. Oh, I see. At least not on well, the air. Well, you can open it even. It's not like oh, the it's seal like a, was it's broken. like a Ziploc bag. Well, I guess underwear doesn't go bad like fruit roll-ups. Or I'm afraid that XXL may be just too big for me. Look at these big old underwears. I, I'm not sure I can wear these. These are. These would be very blousey on me. I don't know if it's blousey if it's it's the below the blouse part of Look your body. Look at them. I could pull them all the way up above my navel. If that's what you want, I guess. Well, I'm, I, you're the one that has to look at it. What do you think? It's looking that, good. Does that make you feel like doing a podcast? Hello. You're going to have to take off everything else first. I can't tell. Oh. We also got a copy of Stubby the War Dog. Sure. About a World War II hero. That seems uh, like a back a back uh, way to get us to do an episode on Stubby. Well, it's not even a back way. I think this is... I wish I had the name here. But it did not appear to come from the seller. But this is somebody who has been requesting Stubby the War Dog... Multiple times. ...in the past, and I think maybe he thinks sending us a children's book about Stubby will seal the deal. You know, if you, if you subscribe to our Patreon, uh, you can uh, insist that we do... Your weird Stubby the War Dog. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're always happy to take suggestions. Yes, that's true, too. But if you support Omnibus at the washing bear level, mm-hmm. in addition to all the other... Trash Panda. 
perks, uh, the bonus episode, the uh, images from the online feed, the uh, autographed show notes personally mailed to you. You can actually request an entry of your choice uh, that shoots to the top of our of our uh, list. Vashing Bear. Ah, uh, here it is. Frank Caruzzi, I think, who is uh, recently eligible. Oh. Uh, so Stubby the War Dog may be joining the Omnibus sooner than we think. So which one of us does Stubby the War Dog? I like war dogs. You like stubs. <laughs> you like war, and I, I like dogs. That's true. You're a cat person. So. You have two dogs. I have zero dogs. Maybe, you, maybe you're um, but I, the one. I have zero war podcasts, and you have one war podcast. Yeah, that's right. One award-winning war podcast. Thank you for the book, Frank. We will, uh, well, John and I will check it out and fight over the rights to, to Stubby's life story. Uh, it's interesting. Voshing bears that that uh, that send episodes to us very seldom tag them to one or the other of us. They seem to think that we're indistinguishable from one another. And you and I can usually tell. Like if somebody sends us three things. And one of them is trains that are used. <laughs> to carry in, nuclear weapons. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It seems like one of us is going to gravitate to it. It will cry out. If one of us is a mathematician that uh, that also was a, was a transmogrified um, super mathematician. And we want to keep the omnibus aesthetic intact, but we don't. Right. Uh, generally, the, the suggestions we get are right down the plate for things that would make great shows anyway. Yeah. So we, we have enjoyed having the input. It hasn't really, it hasn't changed the show fundamentally, except uh, for the uh, financial viability of the show. <laughs> um, Omnibus is now on very stable ground, thanks to our Patreon supporters. We thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, for those of you who have considered um, supporting the show in the past, you might want to try it out and uh, just see how amazing the benefits of membership are. Let's see. I did the that's post it. office box. I covered it. Yeah. What a great job I did. You did. You're amazing, Ken. I, I think it's not, people, it's not exactly going across the South Pacific with 12 buddies, but. People don't give you enough credit for being America's smartest boy. For being able to remember oh, wait. three or four things. Yes, they do. <laughs> it's, it's literally <laughs> the only thing <laughs> I hear. Uh, future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.